From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Army wants Congress to add back 12 programs it cut last year through its night court process. Munitions, networking, and communications programs and one vehicle program are included on the list. Defense News reports the total restorations add up to about $200 million. More on this later in the program. The White House didn't influence the Defense Department to choose Microsoft over Amazon Web Services in the Jedi contract competition, according to Defense Secretary Mark Esper. AWS is protesting the award because it says President Trump's comments about Amazon and its founder, Jeff Bezos, influenced the department to choose Microsoft. FedScoop reports AWS has asked the court hearing its protest to allow depositions of Esper, former Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis, and President Trump. The Air Force will miss its pilot training goal for this year. Air Force spokeswoman Ann Stefanik tells Defense News the Air Force expects to train about 1,300 pilots this year. The 2020 budget request proposed to train 1,480 pilots this year. The Navy's new budget request for fiscal 2021 includes a smaller shipbuilding plan that won't get the fleet to 355 ships anytime soon. The request includes funding for only eight ships and instead focuses money on operations and research. Rear Admiral Sinclair Harris, U.S. Navy retired as National Vice President of Military Affairs at the Navy League. Admiral, welcome. It's great to have you on the program. Thank you, Francis. What's your big takeaway from the 2021 budget request for the Navy, sir? Well, I think the Navy is looking at the budget uh, with full eyes open, mm -hmm. with reality. Uh, we can assume that they'll be flatter than they've been in the past, and so they've got to make the best investment decisions they can. Uh, we know that the Navy has to uh, fund the recapitalization for the nuclear deterrent, mm -hmm. the Columbia. It has to be. We know that the Navy has made uh, significant gains in its readiness. So the continued push of sustainment has to be there. Uh, whatever the fleet number size, it has to be sustainable. And that in terms of platforms and of technology. Mm -hmm. And then in this great power competition uh, that everybody uh, understands, you have to make investments in uh, research and development uh, in order to not only stay with, but stay ahead of our competition. They're making those investments, uh, and we've got you know great talent here that we have to invest in those areas as well. The Navy League's 2019-2020 uh, uh, maritime policy document says the first milestone to get to the 355-ship fleet is 326 ships by 2023. Does this budget keep the Navy on track to hit that milestone as well, or is that starting to slip a bit in your mind? It's going to be hard uh, to keep on the exact number. I know that the integrated uh, force structure assessment is coming out. Uh, the Commandant and the CNO have been working along with their staffs uh, to address that uh, in a more holistic fashion. Um, but we all believe, I believe, uh, who follow the naval and the, and the maritime in general, that more platforms are needed in order to uh, do the things that our country demands, mm -hmm. uh, both in the Pacific and in the Atlantic 
and everywhere else. What, are, what do the platforms look like, what should the platforms look like in your view to reach the capability that the Navy needs to be all the places that the national defense strategy says it should be? Well certainly the aircraft carrier continues to be uh, the crown jewel, the large deck amphibs tend to be the crown jewel, those multi-mission platforms that can serve a wide range of uh, operations across the spectrum of conflict in peace and war. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that the force structure assessment uh, as it gets unveiled will look at those new technologies and where investments, where bets have to be made. Mm -hmm. uh, there have been talk about where unmanned uh, platforms would play in, in terms, and I'm sure that's going to be part of it as well. What will you look for when that document comes out? What should somebody like me, who cares about this stuff but isn't necessarily, you know, I'm not a professional to the level to which you are certainly, what should I look for in a document like the Force Structure Assessment? I think that you will look to see if it matches or aligns with the National Defense Strategy. Uh, and the national security strategy, and probably should have said the national security strategy first since that's the White House document. But um, if you read those documents, and I've read them eight ways from Sunday, mm -hmm. including the classified sections, it's a maritime focus. It's mm -hmm. an air and maritime focus. It's a space and air and maritime focus. Um, so you have to make some uh, good investments of our top line in defense in order to meet those requirements. The, uh, the, as you lay out how all the domains will be important in thinking about that force structure assessment, it strikes me that one of the most important things that's happening in the department right now is the concept of all domain and how it, the branches are talking about how to exchange data, how to exchange information that they collect on the battlefield and so on. How, what would you look for relative to that in not just this force structure assessment, but in all of the things that the Navy's doing in the coming years? So this has been a long-term project. Uh, I guess I could go back to ForceNet. Uh -huh. I could go through the air-sea uh, battle uh, concept uh, and everything in between. Uh, the, the services have tried to work more and more to align uh, their their systems, mm -hmm. so they're able to communicate. Uh, there's still more work to do, uh, and I would look for how that work is going to be done, uh, because the Navy is going to do a lot, the Marine Corps is going to do a lot, but it's not going to do everything. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's got to work inside of that joint uh, structure, uh, and where things that the Army does, or the Air Force does, or the Space Force does, that's better. Uh, will be leveraged in order for us to make those wise investments. I want to go back to the budget and I want to tie it to the ideas that General Berger has already talked about, the new Commandant of the Marine Corps. Uh, he's getting a lot of feedback, most of it positive, about the concepts, the way that he wants to rethink the, the power projection of the Marine Corps. How does that fit into the way that this integrated force ass assessment will probably look? Uh, it's key. So I've done a number of tours inside the Pentagon, as many flag officers have, and worked very closely with uh, the Marine Corps staff. Uh, I have to say that the alignment of effort, the unity of effort between the Navy staff and the Marine Corps staff at all levels, from the CNO and Commandant on down, is greater now than I've ever seen. Admiral Harris, thanks very much. Up next, some of the Army's night court cuts could be coming back straight ahead on Government Matters, where the money's going and why. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Welcome back. The Army's asking Congress to put back $200 million it cut from programs during last year's night court review. The Secretary of the Army, Ryan McCarthy, says the second round of cuts won't save as much money as the first. Lieutenant General Tom Spohr, U.S. Army retired, is director of the Center for National Defense, the Heritage Foundation. Tom, it's great to see you again. Thanks for coming back. Thank you. Is this a big deal or not such a big deal that the Army wants to put back some of the things that it took away last year? So, the Francis, the amount of money, $200 million, not big in the overall scheme of things. Mm -hmm. The Army's budget, $178 billion in 21. So not a big thing, but I think it shows the Army is being thoughtful. Mm. And so it's not a death sentence to be on the North Court list. You can come back from that, and that's what happened in this case. Some people must have made some fairly persuasive appeals, and they got their uh, programs restored. So that's the, uh, the positive spin, no disrespect intended to your opinion. The, the other side of it, the more cynical look, might be that this was a negotiating tactic on the part of the Army last year saying, we want to cut these things. Congress might go, oh, no, don't cut that. We'll give you more money. They didn't get more money, and they, they got what they got, and this is a recognition that maybe they shouldn't do that again. Am yeah. I reading that right, or am I too cynical after being in Washington? I think so that's long? a conspiracy theory. <laughs> I, really, I really think, you know, you read about the night court. It was yeah. like 12 hours or something like that, or 18 hours. They had to make a lot of decisions about thousands of programs. You're going to get some things wrong, and I think what we're seeing is some of these things they got wrong, and they listened to their staff, they listened to their commanders, and they said, you're right. Let's put that money back in. It's going to be too painful to do without those things. And so that's what happened. What else did you see in the Army's budget request that jumped out at you, Tom? Uh, lots of different things. I think they're desperately trying to protect their research and development accounts. And so they had to give up a lot of procurement. They're very interested in their six modernization priorities and, and making sure those go forward so they were willing to trade aircraft, uh, vehicles, weapon systems, all kinds of things in order to keep their modernization priorities moving ahead. I think that was my takeaway, is no distraction from the big six. They're serious about continuing that. Secretary McCarthy just as serious about continuing it as Secretary Esper was. Yeah, and I think ruthless prioritization like that is helpful. And so in the, in the past, the Army might have spread its things, spread its seeds over a huge field and, and saw what grew. I, don't, I think they have gotten past that. They know the future is fairly bleak in terms of increased funding, and so they're doing their best to fund their modernization priorities with the money they have. What do you think is the biggest gap then moving forward? Or, or do you, are you aligned with the big six that they're the right things that the Army needs to focus yeah, on? Yeah, so I think the big six is right. Uh, I have written about how I think you have to have the sustainment systems to keep those things running. So if you're going to buy a new infantry fighting vehicle, make sure you've got the fueling assets, make sure you've got the maintenance assets. Uh, those don't have the sexy priority that the big six do. Mm -hmm. I'd like to think the Army's paying attention to those, but we'll only time will tell. When it comes to sustainment, do you, what do you see, if anything, or maybe this might not be an issue you've had a chance to look at, but regarding some long-term sustainment issues, I know for a long time the Army focused on uh, different types of energy sources to be able to supply energy in different parts of the world where we might be as a result of great power competition and so on. Are you seeing that work continuing? Yeah, they have continued their green power, their solar power types of things in order to stop having to truck fossil fuels over long convoys mm -hmm. uh, and put soldiers at risk. And so they're keeping those programs going thus far. You know, we don't know what the future will bring. Those may end up on the chopping block as well as they try and keep these 
six priorities going. And Secretary McCarthy said that the round of night court cuts that he'll work this year will be, here's the quote, much more tepid than last year. That's not a surprise, I would think, is it? No, as you trim a tree, there's much less for the next year. Mm -hmm. So last year they looked at about 186 programs. They found some $33 billion over a five-year period. This year it's about a third of that. And so they, they trimmed or they eliminated about 80 programs and found about $12 billion. And I think as time goes on, that's going to come smaller and smaller. All the easy things have been plucked. As you look at the list, do you see anything that's muscle? Is the Army getting close to the bone, or are they still able to trim the fat and redirect that back to the big six? There's a couple that I take issue with. They cut the Joint Light Tactical Vehicle, or JLTV as it's known, by a lot. And that's a fairly vehicle that's needed by the Army. It takes the place of the Humvee, which had no protection, didn't have enough power. And so when I see them cutting that, I know that they are getting close to the bone. Mm -hmm. What Are they cutting that out altogether, delaying procurement? What's Yeah, they have reduced the number. And so in 2021, they only proposed to buy about 1,900 of those vehicles. By now, they had hoped to be buying 3,000 plus. Mm -hmm. And so they're, they've cut that buy way back. What's the, your take overall on what you're seeing as far as the divestiture of legacy systems? Secretary McCarthy said recently, we need to just get basically get rid of this stuff as quickly as possible. The other branches are saying the same thing. So he's not unique among that. Yeah, I, I think they've got it about right. I look at the list of things they have killed things like hydraulic excavators, uh, other things like that, which you can envision a situation where they could use a contractor to do that, or maybe they already have enough in the Army. So I think, I think they're doing it very thoughtfully, uh, and they're making sure they get it right. So I'm, I'm encouraged by what I see. We have less than a minute left, Tom. All of this is speculation at this point regarding the 2021 budget. We talked a bit before we went on the air. Congress will work its will on this. Do you see anything that the Army wants to do that you expect someone or some group in Congress will say, absolutely not, you have to keep doing what you're doing? There is a constituency for everything in this town. So even the smallest tractor, the smallest thing has a small plan in Missouri or something like that. I found that out when I was in the Army staff the hard way. I mm -hmm. would cut a trailer and there's a small plant of 300 people that makes it. And so it's very painful. Uh, some of these will not survive, I suspect, but I think in bulk they will. General, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you Thank here. Thank you. Up next, paying military medical professionals fairly. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a pay comparison for military doctors and dentists in the private sector. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Doctors and dentists in the military aren't making as much as their counterparts in the private sector, and it's hitting recruitment and retention in the military. The Government Accountability Office has recommendations for how the Defense Department can attract and retain medical professionals. Brenda Farrell is director in GAO's Defense Capabilities and Management Team. Brenda, welcome back. Thanks for coming. How did you compare the compensation packages that the Defense Department, federal government, offers health professionals to what they could get in the private sector? We compared cash only. Uh, we note that DOD has deferred benefits and non-cash benefits. The private sector probably does as well. Mm -hmm. But this is looking strictly at the cash compensation. And it's impossible, quite frankly, to make a direct comparison mm -hmm. uh, between someone in the military at a certain uh, level with someone with equal experience in the private sector. So what we did was uh, we estimated the minimum cash 
uh, payment as well as the maximum cash payment for officers in pay grades 03 through 06 mm -hmm. at specialty levels. And we used um, DOD's compensation tables and their green book and other data that DOD had we thought was reliable, as well as survey data for, on the private sector side for the, from the uh, American Medical uh, Group Association and the American Dental Association. This is uh, work that was required by the 2019 National Defense Authorization Act. And you write in this report, use a term here I thought was interesting, um, the DOD provides substantial deferred non-cash benefits whose value to service members is difficult to determine. I know you didn't use the term cost there. It's probably not hard to add up the cost, but what that means, what that's worth to a service member is the part that you're getting at there, right? That's right. And we have looked at total military compensation in the past and tried to look at the value of specific benefits to service members, and it, it changes. It so much depends upon a service member's status and what's important to them. I have a friend who's a dentist, and this topic came up in conversation, and he said the advantage that people in the military or VA have is they don't have to go find customers. Mm -hmm. I have to go find customers. That's another item of value that I imagine that the dentist can concentrate on being the dentist and not being essentially a small business owner, I suppose. That can be, uh, but another downside is for some physicians and certain specialties, they have concerns about being able to practice mm -hmm. their particular skills and have enough workflow to maintain the currency. Um, you write in this uh, that uh, the DOD recruits and retains physicians and dentists through a package of incentives, and you talk about some of those incentives, mm -hmm. tuition free uh, school and so on. It, does the DOD understand whether those benefits that they offer are things that the men and women that they want to recruit and retain put place value on also? We looked at these, uh, the, the package of incentives in terms of human capital mm -hmm. management best practices and we identified seven key principles a few years ago that we applied to DOD's special incentive program. And that wasn't just medical, that was all special incentive pays. So that's what we used this time. And mm -hmm. we found that for four of those uh, principles, uh, DOD did generally apply them. Things such as clearly identifying criteria as when to offer a retention bonus. But there were three uh, that we uh, believe that they need to collect more data mm -hmm. and not just collect it, use the data. and that falls into the categories of replacement cost, uh, retention data, and civilian wages. So let's talk about each of those in turn for just a brief moment. Replacement costs, you write DOD doesn't consistently collect information on replacement costs. Is that data that should be fairly easy for them to collect and they just don't do it now or is it kind of hard to obtain? It could be challenging, we acknowledge that, but there are other occupations within DOD that has uh, collected and uh, done a very comprehensive assessment with replacement costs. A few years ago we looked at the Navy's nuclear propulsion program and found that they did a very comprehensive assessment and determined that the replacement cost for that particular type of personnel was close to uh, a, a million dollars. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, they used their data analysis to justify a strategy to place priority on retention incentives versus accession and uh, recruiting. So it, DOD has done this for certain occupations and we believe that they can do it in this case. Another data point that seems to me would be very valuable is under the category of current and historical retention information. You write DOD doesn't 
consistently collect information about acceptance rates of retention bonuses. If very few people are taking them, it's obviously time to look at something else, but if you don't have that number, I suppose that's hard to do. That, that's true, and the Navy and the Air Force uh, do not collect such retention data, uh, and we're talking about historically as well as currently. The Army does collect the data, but they acknowledge they don't have a framework in place of how to use that data to help determine the effectiveness of the programs. And again, we've seen other occupations, uh, say for aviation, um, uh, continuation bonuses, uh, the services have used bonus acceptance rates to help determine if that's an effective way to uh, proceed. And same idea then in the area of private sector civilian wages, they're not collecting comparison numbers to see how much somebody could make potentially if they moved to the private sector? Not consistently, and uh, we talked a little earlier about the cash comparison. We have a number of scenarios uh, outlined in the report, and one that I think is a key takeaway is about, uh, and again, there's different scenarios when a person's service obligation would be up in exchange for their tuition, but we have a scenario where someone finishes medical school, they directly go to their residency program, finish that, and then we looked at the first year that they no longer had a service obligation. What is their pay? Mm -hmm. And what we found was for the 21 medical specialties that we reviewed, at that particular point, when a service member is getting ready to make a decision to stay or to go, there's no service obligation, their pay is below the median of the private sector. When we dug a little deeper, we found that of the 21 specialties, only one uh, was above the 20th percentile. Most were below the 20th percentile. When we dug even deeper, we found that of those in below the 20th percentile, nine were critical wartime specialties. Uh, so we think there's a lot that can be gained by collecting the data and looking at retention points and, and trying to see if DOD can be more competitive. Brenda, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you. Thank you. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available now as an audio podcast. You can get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and tune in, or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.